Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor.fm, the absolute best and easiest way to host your podcast and get paid for it by running ads just like these. And take it from me, I've hosted at least seven of my podcasts on Anchor.fm. I recommend it to every show on our network. And other hosts are going to charge you upwards of $100 every year just to run your podcast on their host. Anchor.fm does it for free. So go check out Anchor.fm for more information. Robots Radio presents... The Cyberpunk Lorecast. Welcome to the Cyberpunk Lorecast, where style is just as important as substance. Welcome to the podcast where we explore the lore, news, and gameplay of the cyberpunk games and other dystopian worlds. I'm your host, Robots. When many people think of August 15th, 1945, it brings to mind the end of suffering, the end of the most devastating war the world had ever seen. It was on that date, August 15th, 1945, that Japan surrendered, that they admitted to the world that they would no longer fight. And this was a shock to so many people in Japan and outside of Japan. This went against their warrior code. They were a people who believed in never giving up. But the emperor was wise enough to see where this would end if they didn't. And he didn't want total destruction for all of his people. So on that date, he broadcast an edict of surrender. And at the same time, he renounced his divinity. Japan in the year 1945 was still a nation that believed that their emperor was also divine. And this is something that is common to many cultures throughout the world. The idea that the leader is a divine figure put there by God or a God, the pharaohs, many of the Roman emperors, and also the Japanese. And it was on this day that Saburo Arasaka found himself in a cherry grove ready to take his life. With a blade in hand, aimed at his own chest, he was ready to commit seppuku. You see, he was a 25-year-old soldier. He had served in the military, in the Japanese military. He was an airman. He had seen conflict. He had committed his life to the idea of never surrendering never giving in to the enemy. He was the son of Sasai Arasaka, and you might recognize these names because of their last name, Arasaka. Sasai was the founder 
of the Arisaka Corporation. The same corporation that is going to be a major component of Cyberpunk 2077 and has been a major part of the series from the very beginning. So Sai was born in the 1800s before the beginning of the Civil War in America, if that puts it into context. 1859. The man who had found the company behind many of the weapons and much of the strife happening in Night City in 2077 was born over 200 years before. He originally came from Tokyo, Japan, and he was known for being a very shrewd businessman. And he had experience in industry. The Industrial Revolution was taking root in Japan at the time. And he took advantage of that to found a company manufacturing, among other things, weapons. In the early 1900s, at already the age of 40, he met his soon-to-be wife, Yui, and they married in 1905. It was in 1919 that they had their first and only child, Saburo. And Saburo found himself in this situation with a dilemma. The son of a businessman, a soldier, a patriot, and an heir to a business created by his father. And it was in this moment, in this cherry grove, when the blade entered his chest, that he had what he considered to be an epiphany. It was in this moment that he realized that there was more to living than dying for something that was inevitable and that he could create more, that he could do more, that he needed to stay alive. And it was from his father's wisdom that he understood that the wealth that was being amassed with a company based on things like industry could be used to put Japan back on the map. That there's only so much one soldier can do in the military, but a man who is educated, educated and powerful could do a lot more. So he stopped. He pulled the blade out of his chest. It had only entered in by about an inch when he stopped himself from from committing suicide. He went home and he treated the wound. And on that same night, he began to study politics, economics, and history. And in just 15 years, in 1960, Sasai passed away at 101 years old. And he was still working. He was still running the company, 101 years old. And in that very moment, Arasaka became the property of Saburo Arasaka. He became the owner of the organization that his father started. And his father started this organization with some solid principles. He had figured out how to make profits during wartime. They not only survived the two great wars, but they profited from them. And they didn't just profit from these 
ventures, they were able to take the money that they made and hide it overseas. So that when World War II ended, they were able to rebuild themselves by bringing back the money, the supplies, the things that they had hidden away across the globe. Now, come 1960, Saburo is in power and he expands beyond just the ideas of his father. This is when the company starts to diversify. First, they start with a new philosophy, creating multiple divisions. And the first new division specialized in high quality personal and corporate manpower, electronic and computer security and protection. And slowly over the next 25 years, they developed a reputation as the most potent company of its type in the world. By the mid-1990s, the guards that were employed by thousands of powerful individuals that were supplied by Arasaka to corporations around the globe were known as the best. The company grew in its knowledge of intrusion countermeasures, computer security. It also diversified into banking. So you had three main sections of the business by this point in the 1990s. You had the manufacturing, the bank, and security. And I think you can probably see where this is going. If you're an organization that has the means to create weapons, the ability to train soldiers, guards, security personnel, and a bank to hold the money and grow the money, then you are amassing a ton of power that's diversified across many different things that are often associated with nations. Nations control their own money. Nations control their own armies. Nations purchase and manufacture their own arms and weapons. These are things that are typical to nations. But Arasaka, under Saburo's direction had grown into an organization by the 1990s that started to rival the power and the prestige of nations across the world. Now, Saburo was a brilliant guy. He was dedicated to studying, and because of his studies of history and politics, he was able to foresee the collapse of the world markets in 1994. And the collapse in the U.S. in 1996. And just like his father did during the two world wars, he was able to make the right decisions in order to make sure that his corporation would profit during this time of strife. Arasaka was big before the crash, but in the period afterwards, it became gigantic. It became one of the largest corporations in the world. This post-collapse world was exactly what Saburo had dreamed of. It was the opportunity to take Arasaka into the next step. The security side of the business turned into a paramilitary contracting organization. And in 1997, they began training one of the world's first corporate armies at the corporation's guard and agent schooling facility, which was in the forbidden northern wastes of Hokkaido. This was an age of ruthlessness that followed, and 
Arasaka destroyed and absorbed as much of its competition as it could. It bought out any non-competitive company that Saburo thought would make a good asset. From the years between 1997 and 2020, Arasaka continued to diversify and strengthen. It continued to grow, even though it was massive already. Its major arms of the company were still the bank, manufacturing, and security. And although the corporation was extremely powerful, extremely wealthy, extremely successful, and Saburo at this point in his life, in 2020, was now one of the wealthiest men in the entire world at the age of 101, like his father, he had still not forgotten his original goal. And you might think that this is where his story ends, very similarly to his father's. 101 years old, passes on the business to a child. But that's not the case here. At 101 years old, Saburo had already had a great deal of body reconstruction done. An arm replaced, an eye replaced by modern cybernetics, the stuff that was available in 2020. And even though there was a lot of technology already available and he had the wealth to use it, he was still confined to a wheelchair and he almost never left the compound in Tokyo. But even though he was physically limited, his mind was still exceedingly sharp for somebody of 101 years. And instead of passing away and leaving a company to a son, he stepped down. His son, Ki, K-E-I, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, became a nominal head of the corporation. But underneath it all, Saburo was still in control. He was taking his time and grooming his son for eventual complete control and to make sure that he continued focusing on his goals. But of course, this isn't where the story ends because we know that things continue. Cyberpunk Red, Cyberpunk 2077. So we're going to get into a little bit about what happens between 2020 and 2077 after the break. Do you like adventure? Yeah. Do you like laughing? Uh, yeah. Would you like to listen to a group of people you don't know play D&D and reference retro pop culture you vaguely remember? Um... Excellent. You're going to love Committee Quest. We play D&D in the world of Amarin. We use adventure modules and supplements made by people in the community. We also have a sweet synthwave backing track. Come and join us on our adventure. Volume 1 has been completed. Volume 2 coming the end of January. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey there, Cyberpunks. Thanks for tuning in again to the Cyberpunk Lorecast. I am super excited to have you plugging into this episode because it is time to start digging further and further into some of the nitty gritty details of the world of Cyberpunk. And I hope you're enjoying this background on Arasaka and the story behind this company that is going to be so pivotal for the events of 2077. We're going to get into the background and kind of the development of the company, and we might 
come back around at some point in the future and dig a little bit more into some more details about them. I also hope that you enjoyed the episode that we put out last week with my guest Captain Logan in our discussion about Night City Wire. We're super excited to talk about more stuff in the future. He will definitely be joining me again in the future. And I've gotten some really great feedback from you guys saying that you really enjoyed our discussion and kind of the chemistry we had on the show. So I appreciate that as well. Also, Uh, Of course, there's lots of ways you can help the show out, which would be awesome because I really, really would appreciate the support. Um, We do have our first patron, by the way. Welcome to Coffee, our very first patron, patreon.com slash cyberpunklorecast. Thank you for supporting the show. And I will be calling out other patrons as you guys sign up on future episodes of the show. And this Patreon is super simple. $3 is the absolute lowest I could put it that Patreon won't let me do less than $3 anymore. And it is pay what you want. So you can start at $3 or you can pay more. If you find that this show is more valuable than $3, you can pay more for that and you get ad free episodes. Plus you get to have episodes early. I will put up episodes on the Patreon as soon as they're ready to go. So you don't even have to wait for the normal end of the day Monday release. Usually these episodes go up at the end of the day, like 9 p.m. Eastern Monday nights. But as I get them done earlier, you will get them earlier. So you get to pay exactly as much as you feel that this is valuable and you would like to support my efforts. And if spending money on something like this is something that you're just not into right now or can't do, then the absolute best thing you can possibly do is to tell a friend about the show. If you and your friends are nerding out <laughs> and super psyched for Cyberpunk 2077, if you enjoy playing the tabletop RPG together, let them know about the show. Let them know that there's a place that they can listen to learn more about the world behind Cyberpunk. And if you would also like to do me a favor, leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called right now, is absolutely an amazing way to make sure that other people know what the show is about and know how much you enjoy the show. And it helps new people find it. It actually improves the ranking on on Apple Podcasts. So you can do that as well. And speaking of, we have three new reviews to read out. If you leave a rating and review, then it will get read out on a future episode of the show. So I'll get through these pretty quickly. From Australia, we have MDMA, who writes, More lore, five stars, would quite happily listen to the host read the source material from cover to cover. Don't tempt me. I might actually go do that someday. So (laughs) thank you for that review. We also have Blue4 from the United States, who writes, Great prep for the game release, five stars. Wonderful background presentation from all the areas of lore really a great way to dive into the world before the game comes out thank you so much blue i appreciate that and then we also have sean fgg124 from the united states who simply writes great for getting excited for cyberpunk 2077 five stars smiley face so thank you sean i appreciate that as well i'm glad you guys are enjoying the show and it really does mean a lot to me to get this kind of positivity from this community and to be able to share in my excitement with all of you. It it really does affect me in a very positive way. So I really, really do appreciate that. 
Speaking of community, there's the Discord channel. You can check out Robots Radio Discord. You can follow me on Twitter. Just look up Cyberpunk Lorecast. It'll come right up. And um, the other way that you can actually help support the show is through purchasing a Loot Crate because Loot Crate is one of our sponsors. And if you don't know what Loot Crate is, Loot Crate is a great way for you to subscribe to a loot box that you get multiple times a year with a bunch of awesome stuff in it. You pay way less than it would cost for all of those items and because they're a sponsor of this show, you can get 15% off whatever crate you buy right now by clicking the link in the show notes. That way they know you came from this show and putting in the code robots radio at checkout. So 15% off. They have all sorts of cool video game stuff, movie stuff, comic books, little figurines, things to put on your wall, t-shirts, all sorts of really, really cool stuff. And I would be hundred percent surprised to not see cyberpunk stuff coming out at some point in the future. I know I've gotten Witcher things in my loot crates in the past, so keep an eye on that. I don't have any inside information, but I would be super surprised if they don't put out a cyberpunk crate sometime soon. So go check that out. Click the link in the show notes. Make sure you use that link and put, use the code robots radio. All right, guys, let's get back to the rest of the show. So if you go back to some of the earlier episodes of Cyberpunk Lorecast, you will recall that I discussed the fourth corporate war. I think it might have been the second episode. I, I could look it up, but I'm pretty sure it was the second episode. And that happens in 2022 through 2027. And we've seen a pattern with Arasaka before where they take advantage of major events on the world stage and they leverage that in order to grow and become even more powerful. Well, there's some situations that start to happen in 2021. The IHAG announces bankruptcy and both CINO, Sino, and OTEC are looking to acquire stock in the corporation, but they're very matched in their buying power and neither of them is really able to get it, get an edge on that. So they decide to start whittling down each of their opponent's resources and they start to sabotage their attempts at stock acquisition. So they couldn't do it effectively by themselves. So they hire some outside contractors. Sino, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correct. C I N O Sino, maybe they hire Arasaka. Otech hires Militech. So now we have the beginnings of a situation where Arasaka, and of course their private army that they're building, and Militech and their technology and their security teams are pitted against each other. And these are the two largest paramilitary corporations in the world. And they'd already been rivals for many years for different contractors. And with Arasaka being who they were, they saw this as the perfect opportunity to start working away, tearing down Militech's resources. So it wasn't like Arasaka and Militech went directly to war with each other. They were contracted by other major corporations and were able to use that as an excuse to compete in more than just the selling of items and the selling of their security forces and those kinds of things. They were able to really start targeting each other directly. And this starts to get personal. Remember, Saburo Arasaka was a military man. He served in World War II. 
And interestingly enough, Donald Lundy, the guy who ran Militech, was also a military man from the United States. So for these two individuals, it's as if the war never ended. And this is what happens when people get to live on to extreme old age. It is said that Saburo became irrational, that he saw Militech and specifically Donald Lundy as an actual enemy, an enemy that stole away his warrior's career, an enemy who he had never really stopped fighting because that was the spirit of the Japanese warrior. You don't stop fighting. And he never did. By 2024, Ki, we'll call him Ki, K-E-I, Saburo's son, had finally taken over full control of the corporation. And by this point, he was fully trained and he was fully on board with his father's thinking. He also would not stop at anything to make sure that he was victorious. He began thinking like a general. He was willing to burn certain parts of the business, of the infrastructure, in order to have victory in other places. And this was legitimately a war. This is why this is called the Fourth Corporate War. These corporations were at war with each other the same way that nation states today would do it. But unfortunately for Arasaka things didn't quite work out the way they had planned. But that didn't mean that they didn't have contingencies. He was much like his father and thought everything through to the very end. By the end of the war, he, Arasaka, was forced to commit suicide. Their tower in Night City was bombed with a mini-nuke by Militech operatives. And President Elizabeth Cress of the United States, the president of the United States at that time, claimed that it was Arasaka's fault, even though it was clearly Militech's doing. This was her opportunity to demonize Arasaka for her own interests. And in a story that is all too familiar, it was at this moment that Arasaka no longer could do business in the United States, but its members and its board were also declared terrorists. Their assets were seized or driven offshore. And Japan had a dilemma with this because this completely tainted their name through association with Arasaka as well. And Arasaka was reduced to only functioning in Japan over the next decade. By 2027, by the end of the corporate war, Arasaka was broken into three warring factions, much like a monarchy that's divided into three different kingdoms because the children of the king can't get along with each other. We have an Arasaka here by 2027 that's divided among three of Ki's children. Ki's third child, Hanako Arasaka, runs the Bakafu faction. The princess faction is headed by Michiko Arasaka, his youngest daughter, and they ally themselves with a new U.S. government that emerges at the end of the war. And then there's the rebel faction, 
headed by Key's son, Yorinobu. And I don't know if I pronounce any of these names right, so I apologize. Uh, Japanese is not a language I speak, but I hope that I got them close enough. So there's a gap in time here. The cyberpunk red stuff happens, of course, after 2027 and before 2077. And by 2077, there are some things that we still know about Arasaka. Clearly, Arasaka is still a powerful corporation. It has reemerged as a mega corporation on the world stage, and it still provides security, banking, legal services, those kinds of things, weapons, vehicles. All of that kind of stuff and police forces and security forces across the globe are still purchasing from them now for the most part they're still a japanese focused business except for one thing in 2077 night city is controlled by arasaka when you start 2077 when you start the game and you choose the corporate route you are working for arasaka the mega corporation with almost 200 years of history that owns and runs Night City. When you start on the streets or you start as a nomad and you work your way into the city, you are dealing with not a city that's independent anymore and not a city that is run by the United States government, but a city that works like part of a corporation. And I have to wonder what that's actually like. Of course, I haven't played 2077 yet, and the people who have have only gotten so many hours into the game, like we discussed last week. But this must color the way a city works. We don't have a modern analogy to this that I'm aware of. There are some cities and towns and things owned by corporations and have in the past where you work for the corporation, but they have all existed inside of another government. Other rules dictated what could and couldn't be done, even though the corporation everybody lived and worked for were pretty much in control of everything. They still had to follow the laws of the land dictated by an organization above them. What happens in a city run by a mega corporation. How does that work? And what kinds of businesses do they allow to exist in that city? Do they tax those businesses? Does Arasaka make money off of every other company, every other corporation that functions in the city itself? Or are they all subsets of Arasaka? I don't think that's the case. It's probably much more complex than that. I'm looking forward to diving into this and really exploring how that works in 2077. Thanks for tuning in again, everybody. I appreciate you listening to the show, and I look forward to talking with you again next week as we dig more into the world of cyberpunk. And until then, stay safe in Night City and take care of yourselves out there. I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Cyberpunk Lorecast. This show is a part of the Robots Radio Network, smart podcasts for interesting people. If you'd like to help support the show, please tell a friend and leave a five-star review on iTunes. If you'd like to get in contact, please send an email to cyberpunklorecast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at cyberpunklore. 
Also, join the community on the Robots Radio Discord. The link is in the show notes. The music on the show was written and performed by The Midnight and was used with their permission. Go check them out at themidnightofficial.com. Until next time, stay safe in Night City. We'll talk to you later. You've been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net. In a world where solid-state electronics and vacuum tubes are still meta, people never stop loving atomic-powered everything. A chosen 500 stepped inside a subterranean vault to be spared the nuclear horror of the inevitable Great War. 25 years later, they emerge after the fallout settles to retake Appalachia. Among them, two former rivals whose blood feud will tear West Virginia apart in their epic struggle for survival. Chad, a vault bro who has a strength of 15, an intelligence of 2, and is a complete wasteland dickhead. Simon, a complicated anti-hero who chooses light and hope, but accidentally becomes a cannibal and wakes up naked and afraid with a Scorch Beast Queen after a date goes terribly wrong. What? I mean, it's a wild wasteland, right? This dark humor radio drama will have you driving off the road and crawling out from under the fallout. Two men. One wasteland. And so many nukes. Chad, a Fallout 76 podcast. Rated R. Now streaming on your holotape player podcasty thing. How well do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember... Beauty is in the eye of the controller.